Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on aerosol generation in the era of COVID-19. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Allison as our guest, and we'll be discussing two of his articles. The first is entitled, The Characterization of Aerosol Generation During Various Intensities of Exercise, and the second article is entitled, Mitigation of aerosols generated during exercise testing with a portable, high-efficiency particulate air filter with fume hood. Um, Dr. Allison, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, hello, uh, uh, Tom Allison. I am at uh, Mayo Clinic. I'm director of uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing laboratories, and I'm a consultant in both adult and pediatric cardiology and also co-director of uh, Sports Cardiology Clinic, and I've I've been at Mayo for 34 years, and uh, in my actually 44th year of uh, practice in stress testing. And it's a pleasure to have your expertise on this podcast. And then we're also fortunate to have uh, Dr. Pompas, who will be discussing the accompanying editorial, which is entitled "An Aerosol Generation During Exercise: Implications for Preventing Viral Transmission in and Out of the Exercise Laboratory." Mike, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Mike Krampus. I'm an infectious disease doctor at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and I'm also the hospital epidemiologist. I have a strong interest in respiratory infections. I've been studying them for a while, and I'm very pleased for this chance to be able to, to chat with you all. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get started on this podcast. Um, uh, this topic of aerosol generation in the era of COVID-19, has, uh, it's a very important topic, uh, important topic and has great implications for um, our uh, daily lives. So, Mike, maybe you could go ahead and uh, explain for us why is it so important to assess aerosol generation? Yeah, well, the critical issue is that aerosols are felt to be the primary means by which COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses are spread. So we really need to, need to understand them well. And one of the challenges is that this has not been common understanding or common wisdom in the infection control world for many years. There's been a traditional dichotomy between uh, or dichotomization of diseases into droplet-based diseases like influenza, mumps, uh, other kinds of respiratory viruses versus uh, airborne diseases like tuberculosis, measles, varicella. And... Uh, the infection control world has stipulated different kinds of precautions for these different diseases based upon this, this, uh, this dichotomy. For droplet spread diseases like influenza or mumps or uh, RSV, for example, um, all that's recommended is a surgical mask on the, uh, on the healthcare worker. By contrast, those that are spread to, said to spread by, by aerosols, such as tuberculosis and measles and varicella, Public Health has recommended an N95 respirator or higher and negative pressure rooms when available. And I think what we've come to learn is, in fact, that this is an artificial dichotomy. In practice, as we'll learn from this article, people produce both droplets and aerosols in a continuous range of sizes. They are both able to carry virus, but the aerosols predominate. 
And there's no reason why one virus should be carried by aerosols and not another, right? It's a function of respiratory physiology as opposed to viral biology. And so understanding well what generates aerosols and the conditions under which that increase it or decrease it are critical to understanding what conveys infection risk and what it does not. And I'll say the further aspect of this is that uh, there's been this concept of so-called aerosol-generating procedures, which has been a special category that has been associated with increased risk of healthcare worker infections. The classic examples are intubation, positive pressure ventilation, and tracheotomy. And that's that the classification, that the sense that certain procedures increase aerosol generation has led to specialized recommendations that even if you see a patient who has a so-called droplet disease like influenza or for much of the past year, SARS-CoV-2, that if you're seeing a patient without, without undergoing an aerosol-generating procedure, you should use that higher level of protection against aerosols, N95s, negative pressure rooms. What we're learning, though, is that much of the, the things on our list of aerosol-generating procedures actually do not generate aerosols, and some critical things that are not on our aerosol-generating list, such as heavy exercise, um, do generate aerosols. So we have a lot of learning to do, and all comes around to characterizing aerosol generation, and that really is the beauty of these two studies. Great. And so my understanding is that the implications of this study would mean that in the future, if we found that aerosol generation occurred with so-called droplet precaution viruses that we've labeled in the, in the past, that we could be moving them to an airborne category. Is that right, Mike? I think that we'd have to, to basically recognize that all viruses should fall into the airborne category. But there's room for, for nuance within the airborne category itself. It doesn't automatically mean that every single patient with a respiratory virus has to be in a negative pressure room, for example, or that every single person inside of a space that's occupied by, by a person with a, um, an aerosol-borne virus like SARS-CoV-2 or influenza is at risk. Um, what we're learning as well is that distance and time are critical factors as well as ventilation that these are other ways to mitigate risk besides simply automatically putting everybody inside a, a negative pressure space. So there's, there's some nuance that can come out of this as well. But I think the starting point is we have to, A, appreciate that all respiratory viruses can be conveyed by aerosols, and we need to understand well what are the conditions that lead to increased aerosol generation. And this, this study, I think, is an exemplar moving us in that direction. Perfect. Uh, that's a great segue for uh, uh, Dr. Allison. So, Dr. Allison, maybe you could describe for us a brief rationale for your first study, a brief overview of the methods, and then your key findings. Will do. So, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was contacted by uh, the CV leadership team, and, and they asked me to answer three questions. And that, first of all, is an exercise test an aerosol-generating procedure? Uh, and from my research and my sort of uh, characterization, uh, I thought yes, but we didn't really have evidence for that. And then they said, well, how can we best protect patients and staff from COVID transmission in the lab? And, and when I say lab, we actually have a very busy practice. We've got 17 outpatient and two inpatient exercise labs uh, in cardiology and then more in pulmonology and not unusual to do 90 or 100 stress tests a day so so that's a lot of a, a lot of patients receiving important 
correct evaluation that, that we needed to move forward with. And then uh, how can we ramp the practice back up so we can perform all these necessary tests, often uh, class one indication for diagnosis and management of patients with cardiovascular disease. So basically that was the task they, they uh, laid upon me. And uh, we had a, we did a little bit of pilot work and it was very difficult to do these studies in a big open lab with the air conditioning running and uh, air currents flowing through the room. So one of my colleagues had done some high altitude studies and, and we got a plastic tent that he had used and it was about 13 cubic meters which was about a fourth the size of a clinical lab. We hooked up 900 cubic feet per minute HEPA filters on intake and outtake ends of the tent so that we could clean this tent down to about 3% of the particulate or aerosols that were in a standard clinical lab. So we, we had a very clean tent. Um, we measured aerosols with two commercially available devices. One is called a Fluke, the other a P-Track, and we had four of these devices and all put around the tent so that we could not only measure the concentration of, of aerosols um, in front of the subject, but in back of and to the side of the subject, too. And then we basically did a stress test on a cycle ergometer, kind of simulating a Bruce test, five-minute rest, four three-minute stages at 25, 50, 75, and 100% effort, and then a three-minute active recovery. Uh, and our key findings were as follows. Number one, aerosols are generated in large quantities by exercise, and it's proportional to ventilation. And it's, it's sort of curvilinear in that uh, as we step up the exercise, we don't see a linear increase in aerosols, but rather a curvilinear increase, particularly high at 75 and 100% of the uh, maximum effort. Uh, aerosols quickly distribute around the tent. We were surprised that, that the counters in back and to the side of the subjects basically read the same as one a few feet in front of the subject. So Brownian movement in the tent uh, quickly sort of bangs these particles and distributes them around. Uh, and we also found there was considerable heterogeneity among subjects. And, and we wondered, gee, do we also have super spreaders in SARS-2, as was documented initially in SARS-1? So, so that's the rationale, the, the brief overview of the methods, and our key findings. Oh, that's really impressive work, and the fact that you have such an exponential or a curvilinear relationship uh, definitely has implications for the exercise labs as well as for people who are going yeah, to the well, Oh, go ahead, we sir. thought, you know, speculation is fine, but let's let's get in there and measure something and see what we really have. Agree. So let's quickly go through your mitigation study, and then I'm going to pull Dr. Klumpas into the discussion about the, the implications. Sure. 
So, so having demonstrated uh, the aerosol production, we sort of answered the first question that, that I was asked to uh, address. So now what do we do with it? And we, we, experiment, we did some pilot work with a mask. We put a PFT filter in the line, and we really weren't getting thing out of that. And so we, we thought about enhancing airflow in the room, as CDC recommends, and I, I was thinking about how can we, how can we sort of direct the, the, the exhaust from the patient, the exhalation from the patient, and one of the guys said, let's get one of these things with the, with the fume hood. He said, I use that at home when I'm doing soldering. And so I quickly went on the Internet, bought one of those things. We had it there in a couple of days, and we started experimenting with a 300 cubic foot per minute or feet per minute uh, mitigation device, and we, we got rid of about 85% of the aerosols with that. And then we said, why not try the bigger device, 600 cubic feet per minute, and um, we adjusted the location of that, put it a little bit closer to the mouth. We redid our experiments uh, with the same subjects and found that 96 plus or minus 2% of the aerosols at peak exercise were not, were not there. They went they basically, basically right down the fume, were filtered out, the device was left in the room, and so we were, we were taking uh, the, the dirty air, so to speak, cleaning it, putting it back in the room, and with a resulting 96% reduction in aerosol concentration during the test. Yeah, that's truly fascinating work. Uh, Mike, uh, what was your uh, understanding after you saw these uh, findings, and uh, what implications do you see from it? Yeah, so, so first of all, I want to echo that the, the beauty of the study is it does speculate its measure, and I think that's the necessary component to move forward with our understanding of what is aerosol generating and what's not. So that's uh, hats off to Dr. Allison and team for doing that. Uh, the key finding, I think, is that it, it demonstrates that, that uh, yes, indeed, exercise, and by extension, I would say heavy breathing, labored breathing, tachypnea, is aerosol generating. Uh, I think that then the implication for that is, A, we need to measure all the other procedures that we say are or are not aerosol generating and actually confirm, and B, it has implications for the kinds of respiratory viral protection we should be providing for healthcare workers uh, who are seeing a patient who has heavy breathing. Um, and now that, that, that can be, that's, that's not a silly a cut and dry answer. That can vary according to the community instance of disease. Obviously, it's going to be more important to take protective measures if there are respiratory viruses that are going around. It also has to do with the, the underlying uh, ventilation status of the room. If you have a room that has a HEPA filter that's providing very good uh, mitigation, or you have very good air turnover inside the room from the native HVAC system, um, there's also a mitigation strategy. Um, but the, the default answer, I think, would be that a, a provider, see a patient, who has heavy breathing by virtue of exercise and perhaps for other kinds of respiratory conditions should be wearing an N95 at times when there's a high rate of SARS-CoV-2 or other respiratory viruses going around. Tom, what is your response to that uh, uh, understanding of your study? 
Well, I I I think really that uh, Mike nailed it. You know, I mean, I I read the editorial and I said, wow, I couldn't have written a better editorial myself. You know, and I I don't mean my writing style. I'm just saying his understanding of the work, its importance and its implications. I thought was really excellent. So I I couldn't agree with him more. So what would you recommend? Uh, obviously, a lot of other clinicians who are in charge of exercise laboratories, um, my understanding is that this work has implications for um, gyms and, uh, and and such like. What do you think they should tell well, from your study, Tom? Yeah, well, we, well here's, here's what happened. Um, so, so let's say by about August of... Uh, or early September of last year, we had a one of these devices in every one of our exercise labs, and we were basically by early fall back up and running at full steam. And we have, and you know, knock on wood, have had no evidence of patient trans patient infection or staff infection related to an exercise test. Uh, I put on a, uh, a, a webinar, a Zoom presentation to a number of my colleagues, and uh, I, I had people as far away as Zurich and, uh, and Havana telling me that they now had uh, recirculator devices in their labs. Uh, and then I also was asked to do a webinar at the recent American College of Sports medicine meeting uh, with with a group from there and um, and again so I haven't I haven't counted up how many people have have followed suit but I I know that um, that that the lab at Harvard followed suit and has air re- added air recirculation HEPA filtration in its exercise testing and and basically people that wanted to get their labs up and running and starting to provide this uh, uh, service again, um, we're, we're leaning in this direction. You know, that that's the most efficient way of cleaning the air in the lab. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't address lab turnover. You know, uh, when one test is done, if you don't have enhanced air filtration, you have to wait 30, 40 minutes for the HVAC system, again, depending on how much you can ramp that up, for the room to be safe again for the next team to go in, but our rooms are safe within 10 minutes with these devices running. And, and so we, we don't have to delay the next test in order to clear the air in the room. So I hope that's addressing what you want. Basically, we immediately put these these results into practice uh, and then through a couple of different educational programs I sort of tried to spread this knowledge around as as fast as I could. Tom, can I ask you two questions? What, what sure. kind of res- what kind of respiratory protection do your uh, do your, your technicians wear during the uh, the test? Hey. Yeah, so we 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 started out with N95 uh, they were wearing scrubs. They wore a plastic gown and gloves. Uh, and then 
as things eased off, we went back, we went to surgical mask, took off the the sort of plastic gown, and as Delta came in, we went back to N95 and the gown. Got it. So we've okay. got we've got basically a a triple level of protection, screening of patients, uh, which, of course, isn't 100%. We've had a number of documented negative asymptomatic patients turn up positive two days after the test. and But we patient screening, PPE for staff, uh, air control. Yeah, I do. That sounds like the complete uh, the complete picture. Mike, you said you had a second question. Uh, it was actually answered. I was I was going to ask about uh, pre-test, um, pre-procedural testing. That sounds like that is part of your 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 system as well. I don't yeah, think so Mike. Go ahead. Well, I I, th- I think one of the questions is does does one need all three um, enhanced ventilation through HEPA filtration. Uh, and enhanced PPE by wearing an N95 and pre-procedural testing. Could you let go of one of those arms and still still get the same result? Of course, that's, I, that I think I think we. Yeah, I think I think we could, but you have to remember in in our practice in Rochester, people are not usually just coming for a stress test and then going home. You know they're. They're undergoing a more thorough evaluation. They're having an echo. They're 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 seeing uh, uh, internists. They might be seeing the pulmonologist doing PFTs, and and they're going to be at Mayo for several days, having multiple tests or procedures done, being in multiple offices, mixing with other patients. Uh, many of whom are immunocompromised, elderly, uh, debilitated in some degree, so that it it makes sense. It makes sense to test patients coming into that environment. If I've argued that if someone's asymptomatic, relative healthy in general, and coming just for a stress test, like a local patient, that we shouldn't bother with it, but. The institution has set the policy that that they're going to require patients to be screened be, because of the, the the nature of our practice. Got it, Mike. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the implications outside of the um, exercise um, laboratory, and, and you had mentioned this in your um, editorial: uh, the, the need for. Uh, possibly ensuring patients have N95s uh, when uh, they have heavy breathing or coughing um, in addition to uh, intubation. Maybe you could comment on that um, because there's definitely um, uh, a concern about scarce resources. You know, do we have enough resources for uh, to protect all patients in N95s? And this is definitely a concern last year. And with Delta surging, uh, there's always a concern that we may have uh, restricted resources coming into uh, the fall or winter. Yeah, I mean, the issue around restricted resources, particularly of N95s, um, is maybe more of an international concern. Uh, I think that right now in the United States, we're fortunate that our supply is very, very good. We've, we've really got over the, the hump of that, uh, that initial supply limitation to the to the point that we actually have mass now for or respirators for for export. Um, so that that I don't think is is a 
prevailing concern for us. So, but, but the question really becomes what's, what's right, what's actually necessary without overdoing it. And I, I think that, to me, it's tied to, to really to uh, community prevalence rates or community incidence rates. When there's a lot of disease going around, it simply increases the probability that any one patient you might see might be a silent carrier. And your response to that can be multifold. You can use a testing strategy, as we were just discussing, and that certainly is, uh, is very good. It's not perfect, but it's, it's very good in reducing, uh, reducing risk. The other then is to say, are there, are there scenarios or, or encounters that are high risk for a healthcare worker and therefore um, high level risk protectory protection is merited? And I think we've learned that the key factors are um, duration of encounter and proximity, um, plus minus the, whether the patient themselves is doing anything that might increase aerosol generation. So uh, the, the nature of the aerosol plume that a person emits as they breathe is that it's most concentrated right next to the individual. But as we learned from, the, the, from Dr. Alton's study, it does then sort of rapidly diffuse to occupy a space, leading to a lower net concentration um, in the space overall compared to what you might have experienced if you were right in the patient's face. So if you're doing a procedure or you have an interaction when you're right in the patient's face, um, that's going to be a key factor. Duration of exposure is key as well. The longer the duration of exposure, the more uh, net virus, more net uh, uh, virus-laden aerosol you're going to be exposed to, the greater the probability you're going to reach that threshold dose that's likely to lead to, to infection. And then uh, what the patient him or herself self is doing. So one would be if the patient is doing heavy breathing by virtue of exercise, by virtue of their underlying lung condition, um, perhaps if in patients who are undergoing second stage of, of labor during pregnancy, um, those would be, be possible situations where the, the patient themselves is going to be generating more aerosols and there'll be extra onus to take additional respiratory protection. Yeah. Mike can I, uh, and, and Dominique, can I just jump in with one thing? Really would be nice if we knew how much virus you really need to inhale to get sick, you know, and and uh, un- unfortunately, a lot of that really isn't known. So, you know, uh, as Mike was saying, how how much virus is being produced, how close you are to the source, the size of the room, all of these things. We we just don't know exactly where the tipping point is. That that when when are you safe without any mitigation or out any protection and maybe we're erring on the the side of caution, but we we don't we don't know where that break point is. And I, I might we might uh probably don't have time today but Cardiac rehabilitation uh, at Mayo has been revolutionized by COVID and the results of our studies in the exercise lab. And now you've got a situation, a big room with 20 people and four or five staff, and the 20 people are exercising and the staff are running around from patient to patient, checking blood pressures, doing education, and and uh, a, a much more complex environment than one person walking on the treadmill while there's a, uh, a an exercise physiologist and an ECG tech in the room with them. So um, it, it get 
it gets complicated as you get to the gym situation. So let's dive into that because that's, uh, I mean, the exercise laboratory is a very important uh, place to, that you conduct the study. But a lot of people have questions about whether it's safe to go to the gym, given the fact that there isn't uh, currently an honor system where patients can say that they're vaccinated and not wear a mask, but a fair amount of them are not. So what are the risks if you go to gym and people are doing heavy exercise, uh, running or uh, going uh, on the bicycle? Um, should the uh, we be encouraging them to wear masks? Uh, should there be mandatory uh, checks to make sure people are actually vaccinated? Mike? Yeah, great question. Well, the, the starting point for this is that there have been many clusters associated with, uh, with exercise that have been reported. Um, some of the most striking ones involve spin classes. Um, and what's striking about them is that uh, the, the, the bikes themselves are at a fixed distance of six or more feet apart from one another. Um, and despite that, uh, reports in multiple instances of large outbreaks within uh, spin, spin classes. And again, it's a testimony to the fact that, that the exercise itself is increasing aerosol generation and that these aerosols have certainly have the capacity to go beyond six feet. And so I think the question comes down to there, there are multiple mitigation strategies one could, uh, could entertain. Certainly, the, on a society level, um, the most important thing is vaccination. We know that vaccination is associated with a much lower probability of you being a virus carrier um, and, a long, and a much shorter duration of viral carriage if you do get in, infected. And so um, that, that is probably strategy number one, two, and three, is try to get as many people as possible vaccinated. Within a gym itself, if there is a policy where they can verify vaccination, um, then that would certainly be a gym that I would prefer to, to, to go to. Number two is going to be the quality of ventilation. Um, and that could be either... By doing, but by, you know, there are multiple strategies to, to, to achieve good ventilation. So one would be simply to hold the exercise classes outside where we have uh, so infinite levels of dilution possible from the surrounding air, and that would be a very, um, a very favorable circumstance. Number two is to look at the native HVAC system and what can you do to increase the amount of air that's being turned over um, and to try to, 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 to get good dilution going all the time. I'll say that one, that one is challenging. That's both expensive and logistically difficult to achieve high enough levels of air turnover in the context of heavy breathing to have a, an impact. Um, we know from our hospital experience that even with hospital-grade ventilation of six air changes per hour or more, um, we can still see instances of transmission within, uh, within a room. Um, number three is to try to use UV light, um, which can be done. It comes in a couple of different flavors. Um, some focus just on the upper air. Some folks in the entire room, but that's a way to basically kill the viruses inside the air. Uh, and then uh, HEPA filtration, uh, as we've learned from the current studies, is a very effective way. So long as you have uh, a sufficiently sized and powered um, HEPA setup, that's uh, up to, to, to scratch for the, the size of the room and the, the number of people that are going to be present and the activities that they're undertaking. And then uh, last, not least, but, but, but last, would be, be masking. Um, the limitation of masking is that uh, if you don't have a perfectly fitting mask, which you can really only get from the N95, you're going to have escape of aerosols around the sides and around the top of the uh, the mask. And so although that's going to blunt the velocity of those aerosols and lead to increased dispersion, if you don't have good ventilation, they're still going to, those aerosols and the viruses that they're carrying are still going to be able to accumulate over time and lead to high concentration in the space. So uh, bottom line... Get vaccinated, uh, achieve excellent ventilation, um, spacing is helpful, and uh, if you can, go outside.
Could I add just a couple comments to that, which yeah. I agree with everything Mike said. I just want to make the point is that exercise increases ventilation minimum tenfold, heavy exercise versus rest. Um, and I think anyone who's ever tried to exercise with a mask, while you may be able to get 8 or 10 liters of air per minute through that mask, you can't get 100 liters of air per minute at the, at the sort of escape velocity. You can't get that through the mask. It goes around the mask. Anyone who's walked up a flight of stairs who wears glasses quickly realizes that um, there are limitations. We could possibly design sort of a helmet-like mask, something with a pig snout on it that that could potentially filter at higher levels of exercise, uh, higher levels of ventilation. We also have to think about exercising at that level for 30 minutes. The, the water vapor that's coming out, does, does the material get saturated? What happens when the mask is wet? So th there, there's a lot of issues there. The other thing is that ventilation systems are developed for comfort, not safety, in public places like a gym. Ultimately, you would have the air inlet coming from the floor and going out the ceiling so that as you ventilated, the air that you expired didn't get blown down and spread around the floor to other customers but went straight up to the ceiling and was HEPA filtered up there. But, but Mike, as you've said, that would be a huge expense to retrofit all gyms with, with air filtration systems and ventilatory pattern, ventilation patterns that are designed for safety, not for comfort. So just wanted to make those two points. I think those are really important uh, points that you've made, uh, Tom. So I do want to be mindful of each of you, uh, your time. And as this podcast uh, draws to a close, I want to give you each the opportunity to leave any concluding remarks, as well as any comments on future studies that are needed to address any research gaps that you've identified um, uh, in your articles. So I'll start off with Mike and then give Tom uh, the final word. Mike? Yeah, no, love me. So I, I think that... Um in terms of additional knowledge, um, we are missing one step, which is that uh, we need to, to move from characterization of aerosols to characterization of virus and characterization of actual infections so we can sort of close the loop and show not only have we um, demonstrated the mechanism, which is increased aerosol generation, but we can also demonstrate that, that, that yes, this is associated with increased infections and conversely that some of the mitigating measures that we've spoken about like head filtration in 95 marks, et cetera, um, remove that risk of infection. So that, that I think, is the, the next logical step to bring this particular line of study full circle. And then beyond that, I think that we want to follow through on this mantra that Dr. Allison has shown us of don't speculate measure. And uh, we'd love to see additional studies of this, this ilk doing aerosol measurement with other kinds of so-called aerosol-generated procedures as, as well as other kinds of clinical circumstances so that we can extend this finding and, and actually be able to speak with knowledge and confidence about what is a high-risk procedure and what is not. 
agree. Ask, measure, don't speculate about it. Um, and then, Tom, your final words? Well, you know, I, I don't know that I can add anything to what Mike said. I, I think, again, as I complimented him on his editorial, I think his, his last remarks really nailed the next steps. And I had, I had approached our ID team and said, is there any way, is there any sort of harmless virus or something that we can work with so that, so that we can measure not only aerosol production, but, but viral transmission? They said, everything, everything that we have that you could use has already been committed to other studies. So, so we have yet to do those studies and, and those are, those are really critical things. And, and again, in translating this data, um, no, no two rooms or no two labs are exactly the same. And um, there's a lot of speculation about what might be happening in your lab. But I have a little device that's called a powder cloud that just sprays talcum powder into the air. And in it, you, with it, you can visualize the airflow patterns in your room. And I would just encourage people to start collect data and characterize what's going on. You might make the room safer just by angling the, changing the angle of the air intake or moving, and in many cases, the ceiling is, is, is you don't have a sort of a pipe coming out of room. You just have a, a ceiling that has negative pressure, just moving the exit uh, vent uh, and and changing the inflow pattern can can cause the airflow to move away from the subject and the staff rather than coming right toward them. So a lot of simple things can be done once you understand the process. I agree. You've both given us a lot to ponder and to reflect on, and thank you both uh, for joining us. A very big thank you to Drs. Allison and Klampas for a great conversation, and a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominique Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>